0: Welcome to Reimagining Life from Pain to Purpose, where you'll find a community focused on resilience and perseverance, sharing untold stories of hope and rebuilding while dealing with major life interruption. This podcast is made by and for people in the process of reimagining their lives. We're here to raise the voices of those who often suffer in silence, living with chronic pain and or disability. This space is for you. We encourage you to get involved so stick around and let's jump right into the next episode welcome to episode 13 today we'll be speaking with dr kirk adams blind since age five kirk is the immediate past president of the american foundation for the blind he previously served in the same role at the lighthouse for the blind Holding a PhD in leadership and change, Dr. Adams works with companies to help supercharge bottom line business results through disability inclusion. He feels blessed to have been provided with three crucial success factors as a child. Strong blindness skills, high expectations, and a strong internal locus of control. And he strives to provide these success factors For oncoming generations of blind people. So let's talk to Dr. Kirk. So, to give listeners a little perspective, could you please share with us what makes you a reimaginer?
1: Oh my goodness. I I am a reimaginer because I am a person with a disability. I've been blind since age five, and disability is. Uh, an interesting word. I have an impairment. My eyes don't function, so I cannot see. But I am not in a disabling condition, unless I don't have a good fit with the environment that we have created as a society. So the the, the built environment, physically, digitally, information, communication, was designed and built by, and large, the majority population people without disabilities. And if I encounter a situation where my visual impairment doesn't allow me to uh, operate efficiently, effectively, then I'm in a disabling condition. And an example I love to use is if I'm in a meeting, I've I've run two major nonprofit organizations, so conducted many board meetings. And if I have my board agenda and my financials and all my reports in Braille, I'm a braille reader. I'm my impairment doesn't matter. I'm not in a disabling situation. I don't have a disability. If you hand me a stack of print materials that I cannot read because I can't see, then I am I, my impairment puts me in a disabling situation. So there used to be the prevalent model still is a medical model of disability where it says a you know person with a disability is a you know a broken a normal person who's broken and needs to be fixed. And if medical science can't fix you, then you are less than, not, not equal to others mm. without impairments. The social model is the one that really makes the most sense. And that says you're not disabled until your impairment doesn't fit with the environment. I know this is a long-winded answer, but often when I'm making presentations and talking about this type of stuff, I say, is any, anyone in this room, you know, five foot two or shorter? And uh, someone will always say yes. I say, well, if you have uh, something on a shelf that's eight feet off the ground, (laughs) you're going to need to get a tool like a step stool or a ladder, which is an accommodation for the fit between you and your environment. Or you are going to have to find a teammate, a helper, a partner who's tall enough to reach off the shelf? So we're all interdependent. We all use tools. Um we all have physical characteristics and um we all have various mismatches with the environment. But people with significant impairments, those mismatches happen more often and are more significant. So I'm a reimaginer. <laughs> because <laughs> sure? I wanna I wanna reimagine this world as designed to accommodate as many people as possible in as many situations as possible. So universal design mm-hmm. so that people with the broad range of characteristics and thrive in our environments.
0: That's a great answer. And I really like the way you described the difference between a limitation that you have the tool to be just fine with, and then anybody can be in a position where they're disabled. Absolutely right. So thank you for that. I think that's really helpful. So clearly you're a reimaginer of the term disability and so many things. How just give us a little bit of a, a behind the scenes look at. So how did you become this professional who works to empower people with disabilities? Sort of how how did you end up where you were when you were in the height of your career?
1: Yeah, so um my retina's detached when I was 5 years old and at that time kids with disabilities were not uh, being educated in the local public school you the model was you would go to a state school and then bring your skills up to the point where then you could transition into public school so i went to a school for blind children in the state of oregon for first second and third grade and i learned blindness skills reading and writing braille traveling confidently and independently with a you know, a white cane. And uh, at that time, typing on a, the technology was a manual typewriter. So I learned how to type as a (laughs) six-year-old. So, um, you know, by fourth grade, I was ready to go to my local public school. You know, I had typed my assignments and my spelling tests while the other kids were writing with a pen. But I was given three things that later in life as a researcher, I I learned were significant success factors for thriving as a blind adult. Mm -hmm. So I was given really strong blindness skills. I was given high expectations from my school and my family. My parents were teachers and my dad was a basketball coach and they didn't expect to see anything less than an A on a report card and expected their children, including me, to be active in school activities and sports and things like that. So I I was given those high expectations. And then um the other thing was just a strong internal locus of control. So a, a sense in my bones that I could do what I wanted to do. And there were no limitations on me. Wow! And that came from my family and the school. So I was with 120 other blind kids. Uh This was the late 60s, run by a bunch of uh, hippies. And they took us out into the Three Sisters Wilderness Area, backpacking. Uh, horse camping, building snow forts, climbing trees, playing in the tide pools on the Oregon coast. So those are three success factors that a lot of blind kids don't get. Yeah. For me, there was no question I needed to learn Braille because I was totally blind. But most people who are legally blind are not totally blind. So most people you would call blind who meet the definition of legally blind have some usable vision. So often there's ambiguity like does this kid need to learn braille can they use magnification nowadays they say can't they just listen to the materials but for me there was no question i had to i had to use a cane i had to learn braille and then a lot of kids don't have high expectations from their schools or their families and those low expectations get internalized and then a lot of um, blind kids aren't placed in situations where they can develop that strong internal locus of control so the opposite of that is the external locus control where you think things are happening to you and you, know, you can't really do anything about it so another long-winded answer i went through school um, high school got an academic scholarship to whitman college in walla walla graduated with an economics degree phi beta kappa cum laude could not find a job I applied to some grad schools, got in, but decided I wanted to enter the world of work and earn money and marry my college sweetheart and Aww. have kids and buy a house and all that stuff. So I, um, had the situation that so many young blind people have is not, not being able to get the foot on the career ladder. So only, only about 35% of us are in the workforce. Wow. Compared to like seven, 70% of the general population of working age work only half, half as many of us who are uh, blind do. So um, I took a job that wasn't ideal. I, I actually went on so many interviews. I'd send out my resume and my cover letter. I'd get a phone interview. It would go great. They'd invite me in for the in-person interview and I'd walk in with my white cane and my braille note taker and, you know, confusion would set in uh, the room as the employer who'd Probably never worked with a blind person before. Couldn't imagine how, how could this blind kid, you know, do a job as a financial analyst? Those were the types of jobs I was applying for. And then I started, so I wasn't getting hired and then I, I decided to disclose my disability in my cover letter. Mm-hmm. So that's, if you have a visible disability, there's a, you know, decision point where, when do you disclose your disability? So. I wasn't disclosing at first and then I started disclosing in my cover letter and then I wasn't even getting a phone, wasn't even getting the phone interviews. So, um, I cast my net wider and wider. My resume landed on the desk of a sales manager of a small um, securities brokerage firm. And he had also gone to my same college like 12 years before he had, we had some of the same econ professors. He was also econ major. So he called some of the professors and said, hey, this Kirk Adams is applying for a sales job. Could could he sell tax-free bonds over the phone? And (laughs) I said, of course, of course he could. So I did that for 10 years, you know, straight commission, no benefits, no paid vacation, just earn your way. Big risk. (laughs) Yeah, but I did it and I made a fine living for someone in their 20s and I did marry my college sweetheart. We're married 38 years now. We had our two children. Bought a house.
0: Wonderful.
1: I turned 30 and I got very clear that I did not want to do that for the rest of my life. I didn't like it necessarily. So I got the What Color is Your Parachute book out of the Talking Book and Braille Library, and I followed every instruction and did the whole thing. And at the end, you know, I got clarity that I should be in the nonprofit sector, I should be in a leadership role and I should work to create opportunities for other people who are blind to make make the way easier for the next blind kids coming up to, to the point where they would want to be working. So um, following the What Color Is Your Parachute process, I set up informational interviews with people who were doing what I wanted to do, and I had a conversation with the woman who is president of Planned Parenthood of Western Washington and kind of just told, told her the same story. And she said, well, I was also a securities broker wow. and I also transitioned to the nonprofit and I strongly urge you to enter the sector through fundraising to become a professional resource development person because there's such a need in the nonprofit sector. And you've spent the last 10 years talking to people about financial matters and their financial goals. So it's your skills are so transferable. So I started applying for fundraising jobs and um, probably rightfully so not getting them because I didn't have experience. But um I got a newsletter from the Talking Book and Braille Library that said they needed to raise $200,000 or close one of their programs. And I called the librarian whom I knew well because I was a constant library user of Braille books, and said uh, told her the same story and said, "How about I come down and volunteer you know twenty hours a week and raise you this two hundred thousand that'll solve your problem it'll give me experience it'll give me something on my resume
0: yeah
1: and she said, "Sure so i Went down. I got a book on tape from Recording for the Blind and Dyslexic on how to write grant proposals. And she assigned a library volunteer to me to read the Washington State Trust Directory, which was as big as a phone book. and It was only available in print then. So we went through and I identified the foundations that I thought might be interested. I sent letters of inquiry. I got invited to write a couple grant proposals. I had what I now know is beginner's luck and got a couple of fairly sizable checks. And they said, could you, we'd like to create a position for you. So they created a job for me. And uh, they were administered by the Seattle Public Library. So, So my first nonprofit job was a development officer for the Seattle Public Library Foundation. And I did that for three years, got very clear. Yes, nonprofit is where I needed to be. I wanted to transition out of fundraising. That was my entry point. So I went back to school and got a master's in not-for-profit leadership, Uh, had a couple different jobs, and then got a call from the Lighthouse for the Blind here in town who said they wanted to start a foundation and a fundraising program, and they'd heard there's a blind guy in town who knows how to do that, Would i be interested. So my wife and I went in and toured and visited, and it was an amazing organization employing lots of blind and deafblind people in various businesses, including... Aerospace manufacturing for all the Boeing airplanes. And I uh, took that fundraising job and then um, was given more and more responsibility, became the general manager of administration and the CEO who was a sighted person. He was uh, going to retire, and his, one of his goals was to have a blind person succeed him. So he said, you know, no guarantee you'll get the job, but would you like to do what you need to do to be qualified for it? And I said, yes. And to their credit, they hired a consultant who worked with me. We did a gap analysis of my knowledge, skills, and abilities mapped against what would be needed. And then wherever there was a gap, a development plan together. For instance, aerospace manufacturing, I didn't know anything about it. So I had to learn about supply chain and ISO standards and quality and all those things as an example. And then, uh, I hired a search firm. I put my name in. I was given that opportunity to become the CEO of a a fairly large organization. I grew up from 27 million to 95 million in annual revenue during the eight years. Wow. And we increased wages. We went from 150 to 250 blind and deafblind employees and we um, increased wages by 40%, got everyone to a livable wage. So I, I was, I was successful there. Yeah. And then in the meantime, I was recruited to join the board of the American Foundation for the Blind, which is the most historic, iconic blindness organization, Helen Keller's organization. And uh, simultaneous to that, I started a PhD program in leadership and change because I learned there was a huge vacuum of blind leaders. Most of the blindness agencies in the country are run by sighted people, which is unacceptable to me. It'd be like women's organizations being run by men or organizations for people of color being run by white people. So I determined just personally that the best thing I could do to accomplish my mission of creating pathways for people who are blind to have an easier way than I did. Was to be a be a strong leader, an effective leader, to understand leadership. So, I started that Ph.D. program, somewhat similar to my experience at the Lighthouse. The um, CEO of the American Foundation for the Blind had been there a long time. Who was blind? Talked to me about two years before he was going to retire to say, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna retire, and I think nationally you are the best person uh, wow. to run this organization. So when the time came I stepped off the board, I put my name forward. I talked to my wife first to say, if I get this job, are you willing to move to from Seattle to New York? And she said she would. Um, which would bless her. So then I did that, led that organization. It was a financial turnaround. They were, they were in a financial death spiral and got and got that turned around. And your question was kind of what led me to the place I am now. So I know it was a long, long story, but I have the lived experience of blindness. I've talked to so many parents of blind kids who are just so scared for the future of their child. And uh just a pivotal experience for me. We were putting together uh, AFB Centennial Year in, in 2021. And. We went out to the New York Institute for Special Education in the Bronx and our, our tagline was no limits. And we asked kids, we interviewed kids, like, what, you know, what does the future of no limits mean to you? And a little like seven year old girl, just with all the confidence in the world, <laughs> the internal locus of controls, she said, I can be a helicopter pilot if I want to. And I just started crying because. I know that people are going to start telling her no. They're going to start saying, no, that's not possible. Or, you know, she's going to want to do something and someone's going to say, oh, that's too dangerous because you're blind or, you know, blind people can't do that. And I I know that's going to happen to her and it breaks my heart. My effort is to, in some way, move us forward so that fewer little blind children hear hear no. So I want them to hear no less frequently. These are deeply entrenched social issues and dynamics and paradigms. I I, you know I I know I can't in my lifetime get us to the point where the outcomes for blind people are the same as for sighted people as far as employment and Mm. income and high school graduation rates and college enrollment rates. Um everything for us is either half as good or twice as bad. Uh, of the general population. I mean, suicide rates, addiction rates, in any measure. So, my my goal is to do some small part with my professional um, knowledge, experience, networks, etc., to um, change change that picture.
0: Well, I have to say, I mean, first off, that's an incredible story, and you clearly have so much drive and just motivation to keep you know building and building and you you really took yourself all the way to the shop i mean literally and it sounds to me like you are making a lot of changes i mean you the lighthouse organization you increase you almost double the number of people and you increase Mm -hmm. the rep i mean people's salaries that's huge
1: Yeah. And now I, 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 I'm i no longer with American Foundation for the Blind. I got clear early last year that I was ready for the next thing. So we moved back home uh, to Seattle and um, have our first grandchild who lives a mile from us. So Aww. he's our delight. And um, I started a consulting practice um, because I really wanted to be able to focus more of my time and energy on... Outcomes as far as uh, getting blind people employed, running a large nonprofit is a beautiful thing. I love volunteer board members to have a board that's effective. It takes a lot of care and feeding. And then, you know, to, to lead employees and support them takes a lot of care and feeding. So I kind of looked at my calendar early last year and saw like 85% of my time was doing kind of support stuff. Um, which was all great, but I felt like being more connected to the actual outcomes. So I'm working with companies to help them accelerate inclusion of people who are blind in the workforce. And, uh, right now, the most exciting thing I've partnered with a cybersecurity company called Nova Coast. There are 750,000 open cybersecurity jobs in this country right now. Wow. And like I said, only 35% of blind people are working. So. We've created a virtual training program that's accessible. Blind people can use it with their screen reading technology. They can sit for two, ten weeks of two hundred hours of training over ten weeks, and then sit for two exams: the Network Plus and Security Plus exams. And then once they're certified, uh, this company NovaCoast, has a staffing business, so they place people into cybersecurity jobs, and the vast majority of the jobs are remote. Which is awesome. fabulous yeah. because the, whenever you do research and you look into the greatest barriers to employment for people who are blind, it's transportation and, and uh, employer attitudes are always one, one or two. You know, sure. They flip flop sometimes. But, um, the fact that these jobs are remote, they're computer based. So we, with our screen reading technology, we can operate in a computerized environment, just like a, Efficiently as a sighted person can. So, um, we're getting it set up state by state. So the vo- vocational rehabilitation agencies in each, each state, which are funded by the Department of Education. So they, they can pay for the training and the exams. And we've got our first successful student through and hired as a cybersecurity analyst one. Awesome. We've got about 20, 20 students in the pipeline right now. Five just started this month. So I think once we're up and running in, um, you know, the 40 most populous states, just looking demographically, I, th- I think I can get 400 blind people a year into cybersecurity careers. And um, that's so impressive. You know, do that 10, 12, 15 years and you've got thousands of blind people in a dynamic growth industry and that can start changing the, the face of that industry. Absolutely. That's my long term transformational change. Wow. uh, Effort right now.
0: That's, I mean, it's really exciting.
1: Yeah, it it truly is. That's awesome. Really fabulous.
0: So I'm thinking about, you know, all of these different things that you learned yourself and started doing, and now you're building these partnerships with these organizations, and then you have to build in, you know, the vocational education and all that. Mm-hmm. what do you think are the key things or things that make forming these partnerships and doing this sort of thing not necessarily successful but make people want to join on and and really move forward
1: well i i I think it's aligning um solutions so there's a book called forces for Good that really made a huge impact on me and it is a Research based study of large scale transformational change efforts that were successful. And they looked at 12 different ones and ha- habitat for humanity is really a good example. You know, started out, let's build a house for some people. And now it's a global you know, systems change. And, and uh, the premise was in order to make anything really big happen, you have to align the sector. So you have to have government, corporate, nonprofit and community. So in my case, there's the vocational rehabilitation system funded by Department of Education, which has billions of dollars, and their their charge is to help people with disabilities find employment, and their outcomes are less than desirable. Then you have the corporate world competing for talent and needing to hire people and not finding enough people. Then you have community-based nonprofits who Serve you know at a community geographic level in any community of any size, there's you know some nonprofit whose mission is to um, help people with disability you know, find find employment. They have philanthropic dollars, and then there's the community. You know, there's people with disabilities. There's organized groups in the blindness field. There's the National Federation of Blind, American Council of the Blind. So so what I really do is you know it's not rocket science. I start by finding an employer who has probably done something with DEI, uh, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. It typically starts with race and gender. And, you know, it's companies that have, are predisposed uh, to thinking that diversity is a strength and then talk to them about expanding their thinking to include people with disabilities. And um, if they want to do that, then, you know, I do a discovery process. I'm a ethnographic researcher and I interview their leadership and people from the other sectors and I come back with a set of recommendations which always are some variation on the tune of let's get the right people from vocational rehabilitation in here let's get the right people from the nonprofits in your community in here let's get representatives from the you know organized groups of blind people in your community in here and let's um put together a, a an alignment where everyone can bring to the table what they have and it will help everyone fulfill their mission, fulfill their desire to have better outcomes uh, around employment.
0: It's amazing. Awesome. Okay. So you've answered, I mean, you've told us so much already. (laughs) You really covered a lot. What do you find the most exciting
1: part of what you're doing now. The most exciting piece is, is when an employer gets the tipping point. And for some it may really feel like a risk hiring a, a person with a disability. Many employers have fears that are not data based. They fear or right, will be safety issues. Will what other employees have a bad perception. Well our customers have a Poor perception. Will this person be able to do the job? If I, if they don't, and I have to fire them, am, am I going to get sued? But there is data that shows that Product DuPont did a longitudinal study over like 40 years of disabled employees. So, like, productivity is the same. Safety is better. Uh, with, if there's significant numbers of people with disabilities in a workforce. So, there, there is a tipping point about 20%. So about 20% of a department or a unit or a company has people with disabilities. There's some things that happen. One is safety gets better because everyone follows the processes and procedures. Um Absenteeism is lower. Turnover is lower. Employee satisfaction is better. Customer perceptions are better. Walgreens. There's a gentleman named Randy Lewis who was the head of supply chain for Walgreens. He's retired now, but he had an autistic son. Has an autistic son and, uh, he was tasked with building a warehouse and distribution center in uh, South Carolina. And he got buy-in from Walgreens leadership to design it um, specifically to be inclusive of people with developmental disabilities. So they got 550 employees and 40% are people with developmental disabilities. And they've, they've designed some technologies to support folks in doing their work. On on their monitor, computer monitor that may actually show a process that they follow or show a product, et So so it's set up somewhat differently. But you know, I was there last fall and spent the day with their management. And um, you know, these they have out of their twenty distribution centers. It's the most productive, best safety record, lowest lowest absenteeism, lowest turnover best employee morale, all all the things. And they have, uh, they partnered with a small Anderson University and they've tracked that data since they opened in 2007. So there's not a lot of it, but there is good, solid, academically sound (laughs) research that shows the outcomes of employing significant numbers of people with disabilities as as a strength can help a business's bottom line.
0: Absolutely, yeah.
1: And the other thing I talk about a lot is if you read a book like The Talent Code about how people develop strengths through overcoming challenges, if you live every day with a disability in this world that is not built for you, you are going to acquire some unique strengths in areas like resilience and grit and uh, creative problem solving and the ability to work in a diverse team and communication skills. So those are the characteristics that Employers in the 21st century say they want in their employees. So the exciting part is when an employer mindset shifts from, okay, we'll hire a couple of people with disabilities, um, because it's the right thing to do to, man, I need to hire more people with disabilities because it makes my business better.
0: That's great. Yeah. That must be fascinating and so exciting. Just sort of see that it does happen. Yeah. Ooh, that, that's really cool. So I'm just thinking about all of these experiences that you've had and all that you're doing. And it sounds to me like you've seen real progress. You know, progress may look different in different places and for different sectors, but I'm wondering, are there things particular challenges or things that are most challenging that sort of haven't changed yet that you think oh if we could only get them to do to understand this what would that be
1: yeah well it's been so intractable you know the percentage of blind people employed may have gone up four or five percent over the last 15 years so there there has been some progress but the, the fact of the matter is that for those of us who are employed, The majority uh, over fifty percent work for government or nonprofit. A much narrower band of occupations than the general population. Much lower average wages and income. So it's there's no easy answer because it's a complex set of social issues. So you have to have complex (laughs) ways to address those things. So you know it's multi pronged. It's the things, some of the things I mentioned earlier, like our education system we need to have high expectations of kids with disabilities so that means working with the education system and and families my parents had never met a blind person in their life before my retina detached so that's the case with many you know families with kids with disabilities and then you know high school graduation rates are lower so we need to address that and then college enrollment rates are lower dropout rates are higher so it's Along the whole continuum. And then, uh, you know, early work experience, like less than something like 23% of young blind people get some sort of paid work before they're 25 years old and like 70% of non-disabled people do. So that's early work experience. Then you have employer attitudes and transportation and technology. And it's a double edged sword. If you hire me to do a job as a blind person and the productivity tools your company uses aren't accessible to me, if I can't access them with screen reader, then I can't do the job. Yeah. So, you know, it's like in hiring a person in a wheelchair uh, without, <laughs> you know, you got to come into this building that has five flights of stairs. It's not going to work well, but obviously there are bright spots and brighter spots, you know, the, even, even the ADA, I mean, that civil rights bill for people with disabilities was passed in 1990, and that, that's a huge, huge thing. And now there's a bill being introduced by Senator Duckworth, kind of a companion piece to the ADA, which was drafted really before the internet world. So it, it it's, um, going to be, a, the goal is to have a, a, a law that requires digital environments to be as, accessible as physical environments. Oh wow. So no no one would build a building now without a, a ramp, a accessible bathroom. You know, those things are just mandatory. So you know the 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 goal here is that it's mandatory that people design their websites and their apps so that um people with disabilities can use them at the same you know level as a non disabled person. So yeah, bright spots. So I don't know. Did you ever play battleship when you were a, a kid?
0: the game, yeah,
1: yeah, the game battleship yeah. so when you when you guess like one e and yeah. you get a hit, you keep guessing right around there right yeah you, you don't you don't go randomly somewhere else on the board, so I think it's uh find those bright spots and uh fan those flames and build up build upon those, yeah, absolutely. it sounds like you're doing a great job of it.
0: I'm also envisioning people listening to this conversation and being really inspired like i want to help in some way like what can i do are there things that people can get involved with or how could you know maybe a small business get involved
1: yeah i i join join something if you have a someone with a disability in your family that you have a particular attunement with there is an organization around that disability somewhere Dallas-Fort Worth, for instance, has a disability chamber of commerce, which is disabled-owned businesses, and they welcome allies. Um, with with ser- search engine capabilities we have, you can find somewhere that feels right for you to connect, join an organization, find your local nonprofit that serves people with disabilities, even just call them and ask if you can come for a tour. That That's a great starting point. If you if you haven't had ex, you know exposure to significant numbers of people with disabilities, you know find find your local community based nonprofit that serves people with disabilities and call them and, and ask if you can come in and take a tour and they will be so happy, <laughs> and you'll learn a lot.
0: Yeah, that's sort of step one. Yeah, awesome. Okay, and I'm wondering. So you what you're working on is that it's like. And at the national level, is that correct? In terms of jobs and
1: yeah, both. I, I have some local Seattle clients who are, who are here, but for instance, the cybersecurity stuff is is very national. I want to get connected with the voc- vocational rehabilitation in every state. Okay. Uh, Nova Coast is very well embedded in cyber. They also have a. They're very entrepreneurial. They they also have a business of putting on cybersecurity conferences. And I've gone to two. I went to one in Nashville in March and one in Phoenix last October. And I got to talk to, you know, a hundred plus chief information security officers from major companies. And I've got a list of 70 who say, you know, they will happily interview any blind person who goes through our training program, which is called the Apex program and uh, get, and get the certifications. So the White House, uh, end of July issued a, it's a national guidance a strategy on workforce and education for cyber. So it's being addressed at the, at the national strategic level. They cited 755,000 open cybersecurity jobs at that point. So it's, it's a national. So yeah. th- this is the beautiful thing. So I was just a- actually on a call earlier. Because we're going to seek a, a federal appropriation to support the growth of the, this training program. Like the, the, the nation needs more cybersecurity professional. Yeah. In a huge way. There's a huge gap and blind people need work. So let's solve two problems with one thing.
0: Exactly. It's a win-win. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. And if people are interested in finding more info about these things, is there how would they? Well, find
1: L- LinkedIn it? is great. I have okay. a, I'm on LinkedIn every day. so It's Kirk Adams PhD, and um, my email address is kirkadams gmail.com, So it's just k i r k a d a m s zero 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 at gmail. And I will happily talk to anybody, anytime, anywhere, if it will lead to a person with a disability becoming gainfully employed, having the dignity of work, obviously the economic benefits that that come from, from work and a career. Yeah,
0: that's wonderful. Now we've come to our rapid fire five for five questions. Please answer honestly and quickly, whatever comes to mind. All right. So what's your favorite sound?
1: Um, The Pacific Ocean rolling up on the beach in Maui, uh, the Kaanapali Beach. I was just there.
0: Oh, that sounds so appealing. What's your favorite word?
1: Um, Dignity.
0: Nice. What's your favorite guilty pleasure?
1: The young and the restless.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Um, what's something that you've learned that you wish other people would
1: understand? Um, that disability builds strengths.
0: Okay, and the last one is what advice would you give to an 18-year-old you?
1: I would say I would say uh jump on this new computer thing. <laughs> you know, computers were just kind of happening. I graduated from high school in 1979. True. And it was like when i went to college i had like the f- one of my roommates like had the first kind of computer that i'd ever encountered <laughs> and i was using there's a device called a slate and stylus to do braille by hand i was taking notes with a slate and stylus and then you know, oh, wow. copying them with a perkins brailer, which is a manual brailler and uh you know the, the highest level technology i used during college it was an IBM Selectric uh, with a with an erase ribbon, and there were other people on campus getting into computers. Wow! And um, I would say, don't don't scoff at this computer <laughs> stuff. <laughs> Get on it. That would be a good tip. A very good tip.
0: <laughs> all right. So those are all my questions. Do you have anything else you wanted to say or to add?
1: No, just I really appreciate you. I'm glad we met. Yeah, and, me um, too. I I'm really appreciating what you're working toward and what you're building and uh, putting together and you're going to make a big difference in a lot of people's lives and i love you for that
0: oh thank you i i hope so that's my goal all right well thank you so much for joining dr kurt's story is inspiring and though it took an incredible amount of work and drive it seems like an example of how far people can go with the right support, dedication, and education. Kirk applied the skills he learned as a child and throughout his life. And we'll tell you, it's because of his family and community and education that allowed him to create a great life for himself and his family. Kirk benefited from the community, being in school around other blind kids, education, learning to read Braille and type and find his way around new places, and tools, such as learning to use a cane and how to make it through camping and rugged terrain. These experiences gave him confidence, community, and support. These just may be the combination of support and education so many other people need to help them learn to live in their new reality. Unfortunately, Many do not have access to such support. Kirk's definition of disability provides a fresh perspective based on practicality rather than the traditional medical model of trying to fix someone. A person is only in a disabling position when they don't have the tools needed to adapt to what they need in that particular situation. One of the most exciting parts of Kirk's work, in my opinion, is showing employers how hiring persons with disabilities actually improves their businesses in a multitude of ways. In adulthood, Kirk put to use his adaptability skills, resourcefulness, and drive. He is a change maker as exemplified in his becoming the first blind president of the American Foundation for the Blind. Of course, this required him to do a ton of research and skills building, purposefully learning to prepare himself for the many new challenges ahead. His passion is trying to help other blind people find careers rather than just jobs, where they can have a future and a livable wage. Kirk's working on exciting projects, putting together training courses for blind people in cybersecurity, an industry where there are 750,000 unfilled positions. After they complete their training, graduates are offered their first job in the field. Kirk's experience in bringing together all the different players has helped get this project off the ground in multiple states. The hope is this model will expand nationwide and be a game changer for the blind community. Kirk is helping open up a new world of opportunities for blind people and others with disabilities, and he's the perfect guy for the job. He exudes a calm, cool, and collected presence, putting those around him at ease, while he's actually rocking the boat and steering it to a completely new destination thanks for listening to reimagining life from pain to purpose we're always interested to hear your feedback and questions so leave a review and drop us a note at reimagininglifepodcast at gmail.com or find us on facebook or instagram we hope you'll tune in for the next episode